Lord, again, give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Allow your uh, word, Lord, just to come through boldly, Lord, through your messenger this morning. And may you strengthen your people. We ask, Lord, in your precious name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. There's something especially tragic about the death of a child. And I think it's hit more people than most of us truly know or realize. There's, a, there's an aspect of privacy of people who have suffered in this regard that maybe is not on full display for everyone to see. Many have lost children through miscarriages because they're stillborn, sometimes because of complications at birth, Sometimes because of physical anomalies, they've only survived a few hours, precious hours. Some have suffered the devastation of something like SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome, really still understanding, trying to figure out why that would happen and what the cause of that is. Others have seen their children die having suffered through disease and others have had their lives taken away through accidents at a young age. Early on in ministry, I was serving um, at a church in Clarkston, Michigan, and my former youth pastor was the pastor, and I was one of the associates on staff. And um, I remember standing at a, the, the gymnasium, and at the gymnasium there was a plaque and the gymnasium was called the Will Vanneman Memorial Gymnasium. And it was actually named after two people. Uh, the pastor, who's now my youth pastor, who's the pastor, his grandfather, whose name was Will Vanneman. And then his son, who I think died at like, you know, maybe about a year or so. And he died of, of SIDS. And I remember standing there and asking him, that very, very difficult question, because I was curious and I was wanting to learn, but I was also wanting to understand him. And so I asked him this question, Todd, how do you deal day by day with the loss of your son? And I'll never forget his response. He said, Rod, you never get over it. He said, you just learn to deal with it. You have to trust and believe that God is good and that he knows best. Now, friends, that has been counsel, although it's a short word, it's been counsel for me in my own personal life because there was a time when my wife and I were pregnant and it ended up as a miscarriage. And I remember these words and I remember this counsel that God knows best. Because your mind can wander into all sorts of places to try and figure out why did this happen and what is happening to this child. And friends, that can, that can cause such great damage. In particular, it does cause great damage to people who do not understand the creator of this universe. And for many Christians, the passage that we're about to embark and study is a passage that they go to. Now, there's a need for us 
to recognize the, the implications of this passage that would apply to our context, but there's a need for us also to make sure that we're coming to this passage, going to Jerusalem first to understand what's, what's God saying in that context through David, but then from Jerusalem coming to the 21st century and seeking to understand how does it impact our lives here. If we don't think through Jerusalem, we'll have a wrong understanding of the 21st century. So it's important for us to, to come to a passage like this, yes, to, to seek to find answers to tragedy and to, to suffering or to seek to, to understand what is going on or to, to find comfort or hope. But we need to see this passage in its context, in the storyline of 2 Samuel, and then be able to step back and to think through the implications of what this means for us. So let's think through a little bit about the context here. And you'll notice that we have this story, then almost like the story ends, and, and then we have this account now of the, the finishing up of the Ammonites at the end of this chapter. Now, I want to remind you that this all began in chapter 10. In chapter 10 is when the king of the Ammonites rebelled against David, would not receive the extended hesed or kindness. And they rebelled against David, and Joab, the leader of the armies, went out to deal with them. And then we have David back at home in Jerusalem. And this is where all the sin breaks out. But this is bookended now with the, the end of the story, so to speak. Here we have the, the resolve that's taking place after things have been resolved with David. And we find here at the end of chapter 12 a formidable triumph. I mean, this was no small thing. This was an incredible defeat of, of a king and a people who had shaken their fist at God. And so it may surprise us that this, this chapter ends with David actually concerned for the well-being of Israel even after he has committed such horrible sins. I mean, committing adultery and all the lying and deception that went on and ultimately the murder of Uriah, but the implications of, of all that with the death of other men too, families, lives disrupted. Yet Joab continued the offensive all this time. He captures Rabbah the city and He's basically saying, listen, we're, we're about to, to finish off the city, but David, you need to come. You need to be the one who does this. And Joab, even in all of this, is desiring to give honor to David and not take that honor for himself. You might say, does David even deserve that? And this is kind of strange, isn't it? Here he is. He's in Jerusalem, and he's, he's doing all these awful things, and yet at the end of the story here, He's being honored by a man, by the way, that David asked to do some things that were really unethical and caused the murder of Uriah. And it may seem strange that this section would end with a great success for David when David has been so sinful. That just doesn't set well. How can this be true? I hear this. God doesn't abandon his plans because of our sin. He still works his plan even when we are sinful. 
He continues his sovereign purposes. He uses sinful people to accomplish his will. And David ultimately is crowned the king of the Anamites. And here in this passage, we see David acting out typologically the victory of Christ over a people who have been rejected by God. Here he is, crowned in the same storyline as his great offense that was evil in the sight of the Lord. God's blessing here, friends, is not based on our sinful our sinfulness or our failures, he will do what he sets out to do. And we are honored and privileged even more so because of our sinfulness to be a part of God's ongoing plan. So this passage isn't saying, go on sinning because you can be assured that grace will abound as if God doesn't care about his grace just that it will cover it. That's an attitude that God condemns in his word. This is saying, even though you will sin, my purposes will be accomplished. Or to put it another way, your sin won't stop my plan from unfolding. Now, friends, that should be a comfort to you. And it should be a comfort not only because we are sinful creatures. It should be a comfort when we look out at other people that we're trying to put our trust in and they, they fall into sin and they fail. And we're like, what's going to happen? They, they, they sin so horribly. This is all going to fall apart. There may be some natural consequences as we've seen here, but that doesn't mean that God is done or he's stuck. No, no, no. God still works his plan. My friends, as hard as we try to be godly, as as zealously as we pursue holiness in our lives, as eagerly as we seek Christ, we will still sin. And we'll sin often. And sometimes, sadly, we will sin scandalously. So we should take our sin very seriously. Why? Because God takes sin seriously. It's an offense to God. We have done evil in the sight of the Lord. That's what this passage is is reminding us. We've acted in rebellion against the one who created us and sent his son to die in our place. But we should also understand God's sovereignty. That he will be faithful in spite of our sinfulness. That he will be successful in spite of our wickedness. That he will, his will, I should say, will go forward regardless of our infidelity. Now, friends, that's, that's something that should, should comfort us. Now, I want you to notice that up to, to verse 27 of chapter 11, God has been a silent presence in the story of David's sinful demise. There we're told, but the thing that David had done, what? Displeased the Lord. That's how ESV says it. Literally was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then we have the very next verse, and the Lord sent Nathan to David. All right, so this is how God feels about it, and then boom, 
God's at work now. You see, he's, uh, he's now part of the story, and he's definitely central in the story. He's moving in the story. And you jump down to verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child. And then you jump down to the end of chapter, or verse 26, and you see there the words, because of the Lord. See, the Lord now is, is part of this story. He is, he is at work. He is accomplishing things in spite of, of David's sinfulness to bring about his purposes. So what we have in this section of Scripture is God carrying out his promised consequence on this child that is born to David and Bathsheba. But even in this sorrow, friends, there is hope. Out of the darkness, there is an emerging light. God is not done with David yet. God has not given up on his servant. David's sin naturally produces consequences. We saw that last time. Violence, sexual sin that will still take place. And the death of his son, Z. We'll see, even through the end of chapter 20, three of his sons will be gone as a result of his sin. But all of that is now seen in light of David's repentance. David's repentance, as we saw prior to this section of Scripture, was real, it was true, and God forgives him. But that doesn't mean that the consequences, because of his sin, are not to be carried out. And here we find in the section that they are carried out. And this paves the way for facing, understanding, and having perspective in those consequences. Gracious hope in the midst of personal sorrow. Now, friends, I know all around this room, there are sorrows that you have experienced, in particular as it relates to children, as it relates to trying to get pregnant or having a child and losing a child, things like that. I know that is something that people have struggled with, they've, 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 they've had difficulty with, and that is true in this, even the small group that's gathered here. But friends, understand this. There's gracious hope in the midst of personal sorrow, and we want to see that unfold as we work through this text together. First, I want us to notice a child afflicted. Verse 15, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah, his wife, bore to David, and he became sick. Now, make no bones about this. This is God afflicting this child, and he becomes sick. That doesn't set well, does it? And you read that, you're like, there's just something that doesn't seem right about this. And we must remember that David, um, because of his sin, has a consequence. And that consequence was then, as God had said, the death of this child. This is the promised consequence for David's sin with Bathsheba. Now, God is not punishing the child. The child has done nothing wrong. But the child is the instrument upon which the consequence now is meted out. 
You say, that seems really unfair. Well, life is full of situations where adults make decisions and children are the brunt of their consequences. Let me just give you a couple of examples. A child is born to a mother who's been a crack addict and dies. It is not responsible for its death, but is the effectual recipient of the consequences of the mother's choices. The child is innocent, right? In, in, in the idea of not responsible for its own death here, how it died. The mother is responsible. Let me give you another example. A, 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 a man and woman or a husband and wife, however you want to look at it, decide they do not want this pregnancy. And so together they choose to abort the child. That child in the womb is a creation of God. It is a living being. And it's murdered for the sake of convenience or inconvenience, however you want to look at it. That child is not responsible. The parents are responsible. But that child is the brunt of the consequence of the sin of the parents. Right? We could look at other examples, but you get the point here. And the same reality is true here with David. David's sin and the sin that, that the consequence that he should receive God, in his wisdom, chooses to put the consequence on that child, and that child ultimately then is afflicted and becomes sick. And so here is David with this reality. And so what does he do? Well, listen, a repentant heart understands that they are the guilty party, that they are responsible for any of the eventual consequences that this child or this, this recipient uh, is experiencing. And so for David and for us, it is right to grieve. It's right to mourn. It's right to, to, to recognize this child is suffering because of what David has done. Notice how what David does. He doesn't just mourn, but he says he, he prayed. Look at verse 16. Therefore David sought God on behalf of the child. I mean, he goes to God in prayer. But he also fasted. And so you take these two things together. It says, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground, and the elders of the house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. David is praying and fasting, not just in sorrow for the condition of the child, but he's praying and fasting out of his repentance. You see, he is affected by his sin. He's, he's, he's gone to God in repentance, and he knows that the consequence uh, that this child is receiving is because of his actions, and now he continues to come to God and to plead with him for mercy. And despite God's words of judgment, David is appealing to God to relent on the child's death. Gordon Ketty says this, No matter how inevitable some future eventuality may seem, we are never prohibited from praying that the Lord would arrest it and return a blessing. 
It is right here for David to be praying and fasting. He's not just doing it to to mourn and to, to kind of bemoan. He's doing it with a purpose, and we'll see that a little later. His prayer and fasting was an expression of his inward lament. But listen, friends, we need to be a little careful here. Why do we fast and pray? What is the purpose or the goal for fasting and prayer? We don't fast and pray to make our prayer or our fasting more effective. In other words, God doesn't answer our prayers because he is impressed with our fasting. It's not as if God looks down on our suffering and sees us fasting and then says, hey, listen, if you would like spend another half hour in fasting, I may have answered your prayer, but you just didn't do enough. So next time, you know what, you need to kind of carry it through because then I'll bring it out. Now, friends, if that were how it worked, we would be in bondage. God would be acting as an ogre, and life would be traumatic. But, friends, fasting was never meant to be a way to gain leverage on God. I like what Walter Chantry says here about fasting. Fasting is a refusal to be distracted from what we are requesting of God. It is an expression of wholehearted engagement with God concerning the subject of our petitions from his gracious hands. So what David is doing here in praying and and, and pleading with God, he's fasting now to make sure that he is focused on that prayer. He's he's setting other things aside and he's, he's communing with God through fasting. It keeps his focus. He's not distracted. Or put it this way, the outward fasting was an expression of the inward grieving that was gripping David's heart. Now, as as he looked at that child, or if he was, we'll see he's in another room apparently, while the child is suffering, he's overwhelmed, I am sure, with the weight that is he thinks he deserves and justly does deserve that is now being placed on that child. David knew that this child was suffering because of his sin. And we're told that although the servants tried, David would not eat with them. You might be tempted to say, well, that's because he he was fasting. I think there's something more going on here. Could it be that David is so remorseful that he is wishing that the death that he deserved is not placed on that child, but back upon him himself? Now, parents, you know what I'm talking about. You you would rather bring life and suffer the consequences yourself to allow that child to live, especially when you know that the suffering is because of what you've done. So his encounter with Nathan not only revealed his sinfulness, but also reminded him of of the covenant that God made with him where God says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. Could it be that this is the child of that promise? Now we know the story, so we're like, well, no, it's not. But David doesn't know that yet. 
He's in the midst of his circumstances, only seeing what's in front of him. Here's this child. This child is suffering, and it's because of me. Secondly, notice the child that is dead. The child that is dead. And we begin with, with death. We're going to see death, the response, and then ultimately the explanation. In spite of David's sorrow, sincerity, and persistence in petitioning God for this child, his request was denied. How do we know that? Because the child died. On the seventh day, the child died. In other words, for seven days, this is how David has been behaving. This is what he's been doing. And the child Dies. And David must not have been with the child at that particular point in time because the news spreads out around the palace. The servants now are talking amongst themselves and they are afraid to tell him. And notice what it says as we read on. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? he may do himself some harm. I mean, they're thinking to themselves, any normal person, if this is how he's behaving before the child is dead, to be sure, it's going to be worse now he finds out the child is dead. What are we going to do? They're rightly concerned. In fact, um, David had been, had been behaving this way, and it says here in the ESV, he may do himself some harm. Now, if you have the... Uh, um, well, you probably don't have the Hebrew text in front of you, but in there it says, he may do evil. It doesn't say himself harm. So there's this kind of ambiguity of what's actually going to happen. In other words, I think the, the, the NASB uh, puts it this way. They use the word himself in italics, which lets you know that that was inserted. But the ambiguity is there to say these servants were worried not only for David, but also what he might do to them. Now, the, 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 the NIV, which is not a literal translation, but I think, I think the NIV has the sense right. This is how it captures the whole image that's going on here. It says that he may do something desperate to himself or to them. Now, you understand they're concerned. This, is, this, is, this would be normal thinking. This is, this is common sense stuff. The bottom line is that no servant of David wanted to approach the king and be the bearer of bad news because you might be the bearer of something else coming from David. But although David was grieving, his heart was alert to what was going on. Look at verse 19. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, is the child dead? And they said, he is dead. Dead. Now, friends, get this. Death dominates the scene. Six times in two verses, we're told the child is dead. It's like in, in the narrator is just like, boom, the child is dead, the child is dead, the child is dead, the child is dead. I mean, the, 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 the bleak reality is unavoidable. Now, again, we know the story, but just imagine you're reading this for the first time. What are you expecting now for, for David to do? How would someone like him typically respond? 
That's the concern. That's the tension that we have in this text. What would David do after he hears that the child has died? Let's see what the text tells us. And David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. The change in David's behavior is so totally unexpected. This is not what the servants were ready for at all. Here the servants were concerned that David might do some some evil to himself or to them, but instead we see David resuming the activities of normal life. Specifically, he gets up, he takes a bath, he puts on clean clothes, and he goes into the house of the Lord to worship God. David's behavior is like another man who came before the Lord to worship when tragedy struck his family. His name is Job. Job 1, verses 20 and 21. Then Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we think about David. There's something going on here that's a little different than what we expect. It wasn't normal in their eyes. The servants are perplexed. That's why in verse 21 it says, Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. Now, friends, think about this. People respond in times of grief in different ways, don't they? And you actually may be perplexed by why they're responding that way. Some people are just understandably emotional. And we might be tempted in our hearts, if people could see there, to be thinking to ourselves, okay, I know they're emotional, but I think they're overdoing it a little bit. Uh, It's been long enough. I think they can come out of this. We can start thinking that way. And we can come across cold in our words, and we can say things or behave toward them in ways that communicate that. Some people are far more stoic. There isn't much emotion there, and we're thinking to ourselves, do they, do they not even care? I mean, is there, is there any blood in that body at all? Does this person hurt? And so we might be tempted to, to patronize them question whether or not they truly understand what's going on. But they're grieving. They're just grieving differently. And then there's some people that grieve in an erratic way. They're bouncing all over the place to emotionals, to stoic, to whatever it might be. And, And we might be tempted to say, well, they're just not handling this well at all, right? There's a sense in which, friends, we all grieve differently. And some are emotional, some are stoic, or some are erratic. And we must all exercise a measure of understanding and grace to those who are in the grip of suffering and loss. Because, friends, if we're honest, we tend to view people's responses to suffering through the lens of our own experience, how we typically handle it. And if that's all we do, 
then we run the risk of not truly encouraging one another, surrounding one another, being the body of Christ to one another. And ultimately, we could come up with some kind of form of judgmentalism rather than being the the salve and the medicine that they need at that particular point in time. These servants had seen David in the rawness of his grief. And they're having difficulty understanding how he can simply press a button and change so quickly. They were worried that his week of mourning would take him further and further down, but now he just gets up. And it's just life is normal. But what they don't understand is that David knows his God. And for David, going to the house of God is no formality. He's not just going to church just to go to church for church's sake. He's going there for a reason. It's a hunger and a desire in the midst of suffering to bow down to his creator. This is the same God who raised him up. This is the same God who guided his life and brought so much success. This is the same God who established him as king over Israel and Judah. This is the same God who covenanted with him. And David isn't being callous to the death of this child. He isn't simply moving on with his life. I don't for a minute believe that David stopped grieving here. But I do believe that David, being rooted in the character of God, was able to settle into the reality of the situation, but with hope and confidence in God and his goodness. So rather than say, move on, I think it's better for us to say, press on. Because the idea of pressing on doesn't mean that everything is over and done with. It just means, you know what, I need to get up and I need to live. But I need to be able to do that with a strength that only comes from God. I like what Richard Phillips says, in grief, when there is something that is so difficult to bear, the answer is worship. Now think through this. David understood what he needed to do was to worship, to press on. How? By leaning into God. Remember the old song? Leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. There's a sense in which we don't just go to worship, but we go, we go to lean. We go to rest. We go to to find ourselves embraced by God. How? Through worship. There's a sense in which we are recalibrated by the grace of God when we come to him in worship. We humble ourselves before him. We agree with him that his ways are good. We praise him for being gracious and kind and ever-present with us. We adore him for being all-wise and sovereign, even in our time of suffering. And our feelings, however, might betray us but we must fight through them with a good theology that bows its head in worship to the God of the universe. It doesn't take away any of the the, the harshness of the tragedy, but it is a means by which we're able to hold on to reality and be able to get up and to make progress 
to press on. And we move from that into what I'm calling explanation. The servants were perplexed by David's behavior, but now he explains himself. And what what we see here is David's deep theology that has been driving his actions. First of all, here's what David did while the child suffered. Verse 22. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. So he's saying, I fasted for a reason, because I know that my God is a God who sometimes graciously relents from his stated word. Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that my child may live. I had to chuckle when I read that in my study, because there have been a number of passages just through the years here at Gateway where the statement, who knows, has been part of the text, referring to God's sovereign purposes. You don't always know what he's going to do and how he's going to be. Friends, this is not unique theology. We see it in other places in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament. Here, let me give you some examples. You have the references up there. Maybe you just want to listen Maybe you want to turn there, that's fine. In Daniel chapter 3, we have three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will not bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has built and he's decreed that everyone should bow down to. So he gives them another opportunity, and if they don't do what he says, then they're going to be cast into the fiery furnace. And this is the response that they have, and it reveals their theology. It reveals their understanding of who God is. Daniel 3.16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. So these men knew that they were obeying God rather than men. They knew God was able to deliver them from the fiery furnace, but they didn't presume upon God. They put their trust in God saying, who knows what God will choose to do. If he wants to deliver us, he will. If he doesn't want to deliver us, then praise be to God. David knew that God was able to save his son. But he also knew that it was completely in God's hands. Here's another one. The one is Joel chapter 2. And what we have here is, is a passage where repentance is encouraged and divine relenting is spoken of as a possibility. So there's a, there's a judgment stated, there's a repentance that's encouraged, and if repentance takes place, there's a divine relenting that is spoken of as a possibility. Listen, he says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's the character of God. And he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him in a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Who knows? 
David understood that some prophecies were warnings of what God would do unless man repented. And so David mourns, he prays with a heart of repentance for God to relent. And then finally, Jonah, chapter 3, in particular, verse 9. But here we, we see the king of Nineveh responding to the judgment that God had given Nineveh through the, the mouth of the prophet Jonah. This is what the, the prophecy was. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the king finally hears about it and he responds to it. And here ultimately is, is what we're told by the mouth of this proclamation from the king of Nineveh. By the decree of the king of the nobles, let neither man nor beast Herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mighty, mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. You see, David understood that although God speaks judgment, he does at times relent. So friends... The example that we have from David is that it is right to pray and to plead for those who are suffering and dying. In particular, it's right to pray and to plead for those who have been told that they have no hope. The only solution, the only option is death. Secondly, we can still pray and fast and plead with God for what seems to be inevitable to be reversed. But that must only be done with the understanding that God is sovereign and knows what is best. He certainly is able, but he is also sovereign. But who knows? <laughs> so we pray, we fast until God reveals his will. That's what David was doing before the child died, while it was afflicted. But now we find out what David is doing after the child died. Simply put, after the child died, David did two things. He, 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 he resigned and rested in God's sovereignty. So we're told, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? When the child died, David understood that God had given him his answer to his pleading. God had spoken, and now he must be resigned to God's wisdom and rest in his grace. He knew that there was nothing else that he could do to bring that child back. God's will had been revealed. But he also looked forward in hope to being with his child again. Here, here are the precious words that we have run to so many times to bring comfort. He says, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. This is not talking about the grave. This is talking, in my opinion, about David's hope that he would one day see his child again in heaven. So what do these words mean? Does this mean that David believed that his child that was suffering and died would be going to heaven. I think that's exactly what is going on here. But what does this mean also about other children? Do all unborn infants 
children who don't have the capacity to even comprehend what happens to them. My quick answer would be yes, I believe that, that God in his, his kindness and grace draws them into his presence. But I don't think this is the only place that we can come to that. I, in fact, I want to just take a moment here to, just to lay out a, a brief biblical argument just with a couple other principles or, or texts. And I think, I think the place that I would want to begin when someone says, you know, what has happened to my child? What has happened with this little one who now has died? I would just want to encourage you, first of all, to begin with this. Begin with the character of God. It's easy to say and try and find a proof text like this to say, ah, see, David said this, therefore it must be true. But I, I, would, just, I would just back up on that and say, listen, we serve a good, just caring, fair, righteous God. And quite, quite, quite frankly, friends, when we don't have specific answers, we, we have to rest on that character as the basis of our comfort. I know we want to know we want the certainty, we want the confidence of saying, yes, I'm going to see that child in heaven. But more importantly than that is to, to, to rest on the wisdom and the compassion and the righteousness of God and to trust that he knows best and that he's a God that exercises grace and kindness at his discretion. And so the character of God alone, in my opinion, is the best place for us to find hope. Now, having said that, I would also encourage you to consider what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. And here I would say that one of the things we need to consider is the child's capacity to understand the gospel. Now, you may agree with me or disagree with me on this, but as I wrestle with Scripture, I think the reasoning that, that Paul is using here gives indication that this would be true. He says in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, for what can be known about God is plain to them, that is mankind, because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, in other words, the whole aspect of nature. So, based on that, they are without excuse. Well, if you cannot clearly perceive, then it seems to be that there is an excuse. Now, you wrestle with that. Child who has not been born yet does not have the capacity to perceive, does not have the capacity to look up into the stars and the heavens and to see all that and say, ah, there's God. Even when that child is born, all it's thinking about is food. Change my diaper. There's an aspect here of a limited capacity to understand the gospel. So it would appear here then that babies, the unborn, young children, or those whose mental capacities are unable to comprehend God's revelation do have an excuse. And I would take the position that all of these that I've mentioned are among the elect of God that that he has chosen to draw to himself. 
I would say the third place we go is then to a, a text like we looked at here in, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, where David makes a statement like this. And I just, just put, all, put all this together. We have encouragements from the character of God, secondly, from Paul's theology, thirdly, from the example, from the heart of the man after God's own heart. And friends, the comfort that we have is this. Number one, death doesn't sever our relationship with our children who have died in the womb as infants or little ones. We have confidence, I believe, that one day when we enter into heaven that we will be reunited with them. Now, quite frankly, when you get to heaven, your focus of attention is going to be Christ. And maybe after about 10,000 years, if time is even a factor there, you'll say, aha, there's that little one. Or those, there are those little ones. Now, friends, there's also another aspect here, and I tell you what, this is, this is comforting to me. When it comes to grieving over the hundreds of thousands of children that are aborted every year, and we understand things in, in this sense, God has called them into his presence. That doesn't mean, well, let's do it some more. What that means is by God's grace, these little ones are populating heaven. And we can be thankful that God is good and he's kind that he is doing that. So the pain and suffering that they would be experiencing is overshadowed by the gracious arm of God drawing them in like this hen would draw its chicks into himself or herself, I should say. Now, friends, this is not, for me, sentimentality speaking, but comfort and heart medicine that flows from the application of God's revelation. I want to challenge you to, to wrestle with that yourself. And David's child has been born to Bathsheba. He's been afflicted and now dies, but God is not done with David because a child is going to be born. <laughs> One of the greatest statements from the Reformation is this. Post-Tenabras lux, which literally means after darkness, light. And friends, that is exactly what we see God do with David's life. He's sinned a great sin. It's evil in the sight of God. He's been confronted by Nathan. That would be God's prophet. He's humbled himself in repentance. He's endured the consequences of sin in the death of this child. But out of this sinful tragedy, out of this darkness, God will bring light. Verse 24, then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her. By the way, remember, they were married now, okay? And she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. I mean, just let that settle in. Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. So a son is born to David now out of this darkness, and his name is Solomon. Solomon literally means peace or wholeness. 
Remember, David has repented. David has been forgiven. He's, he's living out the, the consequences of his sin. But God is restored to David. And God in his kindness and his grace is now providing David with another son. A son that will bring peace. A son that will mean bring wholeness to his, his life. And you can say even to his, his marriage. God is giving them a, another chance at this. But God isn't done with his encouragement because he sends Nathan the prophet to give this child an official name. It's Jedediah. And Jedediah, if you look at your little marginal note there, it says, Beloved of the Lord. Why would this child be beloved of the Lord? Because of no other reason than the grace of God and his loving kindness being showered out on David and his family. There's no reason for it. Did David do anything to deserve this kindness? Absolutely not. But God in his kindness brings about the birth of this little one. And friends, all of this happened, it says at the end, because of the Lord. Do you think David's sin shook God's world? Absolutely not. God was going to accomplish what he set out to accomplish in spite of David's sin. But friends, when we're in the thick of our sinful mess, we're called to lay our hands on God's grace. And friends, there's always hope in God's grace. He can bring light out of darkness. He can bring purpose out of suffering. David would ultimately see four sons die because of his sin. Amnon, Absalom, this unnamed child, and a little later, Adonijah. But one of the sons born to David, by Bathsheba in particular, after Solomon, is a son by the name of Nathan. Let me ask you a question. When you choose the names of your children, why do you choose them? Well, I was looking through a book and I just thought, oh, it was a cool name. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you a reason why you don't choose a name. I had a girlfriend that was named that. Or this person I didn't like at all. Had a bad impression on me. Why do you choose a name? I wonder. We're not told. But I wonder whether or not David chose the name Nathan because it was Nathan that he saw and his godly character on display even in his life, even in the sinfulness of his life. And here is Nathan coming and approaching him and being used by God. Or maybe he chose Nathan because he saw in Nathan God's gracious hand through his ministry. But hear this. There is something even bigger going on here. It is through the son Nathan that David's future hope, Jesus Christ, would come. So how do I know that? Turn your Bibles to the book of Luke. In chapter 3. This is one of the genealogies. There's a genealogy 
that goes through the line of, um, well, the one that we have in Luke is the line through Mary, okay? And so what we find here in chapter 3 and verse 31 and 32 is an account of all of this genealogy, all right? And so this is just taking a snapshot out of it from Adam to David, or to Jesus, I should say. The son of Malia, the son of Manna, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz. I say, what does that have to do with anything? You know what? God, in his wisdom, had his purpose, had his plan, was working it. And you know what? His plan bore fruit through the sinfulness of David. Now, friends, this is so important for us. When we sin, is it over? No. In fact, not justifying your sin, but God works his will through the sinfulness of man. So we step back and we look at our nation and we look at our, our, our communities, we look at our families, and we see sin all over the place. We have to recognize sin is evil because that's what sin is. But God is far greater than all that. That he can work through all that darkness to bring about light. His own light. His own purposes. You know, we began... This, this whole series on this section by talking about the cracks in David's life. Remember that? Being like the cracks of a dam, and the dam is up there, and as David you know, looked around, he saw Bathsheba, those cracks began to show, and all of a sudden, boom, this, this, this dam broke, and, and the floods just came out and destroyed all of this territory, all this damage that, that resulted because of David's sin. Using that same image. Trees that have been knocked down, places that have been destroyed, little saplings are starting to rise up. Grass is growing. New life is taking place. See, friends, this is, this is what happens. Even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of devastation, God is working his plan. And it might be slow, or it might be sooner, but there's hope, there's light. And there's purpose. And friends, we have a great God who loves us with his steadfast love and works through us in spite of our sinfulness. That doesn't mean sin more. It just means when you sin and you repent and you are forgiven and you're living with the consequences of your sin, that you can still pursue following the Lord Jesus Christ living for his glory. There is light, and there is life, and there is hope after sin, after devastation, after tragedy, because God is our great God and Savior. He's secure. He's seated on his throne. And nothing ever shakes him. Lord, help us. Would help us to, to be nursed by this text to consider our own tragedies, our own sinfulness, the burdens that we carry with us. 
to find counsel and help and guidance, Lord, from your word, Lord. I just ask that this, this passage would continue to resonate in us. And Lord, I know that there are people who, in the quietness of their heart, have, have suffered great tragedies. The loss of a child, not understanding exactly what you're doing. But Lord, I ask that as we've walked through this, that, that hearts would be, Lord, just resting in you, finding an understanding and perspective, Lord, that comes from you. Lord, we need you. We need your help. We need your guidance. We need your counsel. And Lord, we're, we're in awe of the fact that you can make something beautiful something meaningful, something lasting out of the messes that we make. You are truly a great God, and we praise you. In your precious name, we ask this. Amen.